0: Welcome to Dumb Dives. Join me, Pranav, and my close friend Arvind as we dip our toes in the kiddie pools of technology and philosophy and explore the back roads of society.
1: Hey Pranav, so like we've done a few episodes about technology and that kind of thing. I thought today we can do something a bit different and get into languages.
0: Yes, uh, we'll, be, we'll be kind of dipping our toes in like the society and culture part of our <laughs> podcast which we we've kind of not done. I mean, we have to an extent, but not exclusively on society and culture, I'd say.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that we need to diversify a bit and thought language would be a great place to start. Recently, I've been reading up about this constructed language that was created about 20 years ago by this uh, Canadian linguist called Sonia Lang. Uh, It's called Tokipona. And it borrows a lot of different uh, ideas and aspects from different languages. But the thing that, like, really brought to my attention and made it interesting to me was that it only has a vocabulary of, like, 150 words. And this language was sort of specifically designed where everything is sort of optimistic and happy. The vocabulary and language construction itself was designed in a way to sort of, like, push... Uh, positive feelings within the speakers and that just got me to dig deeper into how language itself might be able to influence uh, thought because of the constructs and the characteristics of a language and its speakers. Uh, change the way, right? It.
0: So, so you're talking like the concepts that are embedded within language itself. Yep. Like, you can only feel sadness if you have words to express them right? Sort of, yeah. I mean, you you can feel it, but you can't express it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like it. You won't have um you won't have something to um structuredly say. Oh, I feel this way. Like, I can say I feel anger, but a language without that concept of anger itself, a person wouldn't be able to say I feel this. I feel like
1: those basic emotionals are. A bit deeper into how how humans think but uh more surface level uh, information like color numbers just like details right. about the scene like if you don't have very detailed vocabulary to describe different shades of green or blue and you look at say a landscape of trees and a hill you might not be able to recall with great detail the different shades of colors because maybe in your language there's just green and uh you might know that some of it was darker green and some of it was lighter green but if you had different words for those
0: like when i say the sea is cerulean blue yeah a language without that kind of like specific thing of yeah
1: exactly if you use the words like that you see in like you know if you were to bo- buy a box of crayons or something like they have these very peculiar words that we don't usually use in daily life. Yeah, but If exactly. you were to look at colors and identify it with those words, perhaps it would be easier for you to recall and identify them uh, later on because you have such a clear understanding of what cyan or cerulean or like yeah like all these different colors like are.
0: vermilion so and that, everything right
1: yeah yeah that's the sort of idea that I wanted to get into and like for the the researchers and the research community like this is uh, sort of known as the Sapir-Whorf
0: hypothesis which I from from my little bit of reading I found that's a bit of a misnomer because Sapir and Worf never really authored a hypothesis together <laughs> <laughs> like like they they had independent works that kind of got to two different theses about linguistic relativity from what i can understand one is a strong theory which is language determines cognition and thought The the concepts you have in a language determine what you can speak about and what you can think of mm-hmm. versus the other one which is which is the weaker theory um which states uh, language only influences what you can think and what you can speak but you can always find ways to express it in a different way um, and, and it's interesting. So when you were talking about blue and green, it brought to mind this uh, little bit of trivia that from what I know, the Japanese language did not have a word for green until fairly recently.
1: They have the word ao.
0: ao which was used for blue and green. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They didn't have a specific thing, which right now I think is midori.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So with like uh, Chinese influence and a lot of other, it's yeah. like the, the thing that we mentioned earlier, like we have words like cerulean or words like teal and cyan, like not very commonly used but they do exist in-
0: yeah so so the trivia I wanted to talk about was just that the traffic lights while they're still green people refer to them as "ow," which is now I think used exclusively for blue if I read the place where i found that trivia but again i don't speak japanese
1: no but it is interesting because like the traffic lights if we were to look at those traffic lights they're pretty blue like they're not actually as green as our our traffic lights like Ah. in japan you would see like it's red amber yellow and then bluish because the word owl is like that combination of both blue and green like it just sort of like developed that the green traffic like that as we know it became more blue for them because like it's not really that big of a difference to them
0: that kind of makes you also think about some of these other um, some of these other examples basically like again uh, this is something both of us found while doing research for this episode there are some south american tribes one is um, piraha or piraya i'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it none of the pronunciation guides we found help but um, one of these languages has no real concept of numbers the way we have them. Like, we know natural numbers and real numbers, and we have, like, zero, one, two, three, and so on.
1: Yeah, so if they were to see a group of objects and you ask them to count it... They'd just say a few. Like, let's say if we can count five different objects that are present, like, they would just be like, oh, there's a few. And then maybe you give them another picture and ask them to say, are there more objects or, or fewer objects in the second picture? It might be difficult because they... There isn't really a system to count the exact number of objects and it's hard to keep track when you don't really have a system for it.
0: To give a more concrete example there, um, we have estimation, right? Like that's just a skill taught to us at school. So when we see, when we have uh, a container with five and we're given another container with 15 and we're just kind of like asked to estimate which one has more, which one has fewer. Or, or not five, and not five and fifteen, five and eight, because like that's close, right? It might be more difficult for someone without like concrete numbers to to make that kind of estimation. I, I again, this is like a super reductive example. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I feel like we say we say the same. Yeah, but it been, is, it is.
1: Yeah, I feel like those examples. <laughs> like, uh, I, I haven't worked with these communities, but I feel like when the now the differences are that significant, it would be easy. But like say four or five or something like that or maybe 9 or oh, yeah, 10 yeah, yeah. like we can count that number and then like remember yeah. it across
0: fair enough again like i'm i'm just trying to figure out because it's also a different it's a difficult concept for us to grasp because we we're used to exact numbers yeah. so so learning about um, cultures that don't have those specifics
1: the the reason i, I even dove into all this was because tokipona does not really have specific counting either it just has one few and many because like finally they only have a vocabulary of like 150 words you don't have space to to keep track of numbers they have like a very limited color system as well and it's super super fascinating because like the word for mother and father is like the same word mama so you just need to use context and other clues to sort of guide the listener to understand what you're talking about and you realize, like, a lot of these constructs aren't truly essential to uh, communicate thought, but they do make things easier for you to remember detail.
0: To remember detail and to, I think, get nuances across, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know how nuanced of a conversation you can have about, like, like, for example, if we were to do this in Toki Pona, and I'm not suggesting we do because I don't know the language, <laughs> Um, but if we were to do this kind of podcast in Tokipona, I doubt we'd be able to get into the the limited nuance that we do. I, I think it would be really tough because there are very specific kinds of words we're using, which I don't know how analogous or how easy it would be to bring that concept into Tokipona through the limited vocab that they
1: have. I, I sort of refute that because like even with a language like like Chinese, the set of languages you don't really have the concept of tense in the sort of grammatical structure it's mostly context Mm -hmm. clues and also specifying the time like i do this could either mean i am doing this i have already done this or i will do this so you don't really need a lot of these like
0: i don't think i'm talking about like grammatical level because i think grammar that way can be fairly fluid you can always adjust
1: thing is like people adjust the the limited vocabulary or the grammar system accordingly to describe these thoughts.
0: I want to just add to that because again coming out of a slightly academic philosophy oriented thing I've had to use jargon words in my papers right like I've tried to substitute them with simpler terms that would be more universal I've tried but there are certain very specific words like when I when I talk about phenomenology it's a specific word. I like. I can say, you know, it's subjective first-person experience, but that doesn't get the entirety of what I mean.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, I mean, while, while you can adapt, there are certain words specific to certain languages that you cannot, you can't lose them because then it loses that specific nuanced meaning.
1: Yeah, I get what you mean. It, it also, like, makes it, like, brief. You don't have to explain that one word entirely every single time that you use it.
0: So, in cases like that, so so again, just getting back to this idea of like how nuanced could discussions be, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and and for example, again, just to get back to another couple of trivia points, right? Like, it's it's Aboriginal language from Australia.
1: Oh, the Google Yimidit.
0: Yeah, Google Yimidit. So
1: go. they they're really really interesting in the fact that they uh, always use the cardinal directions, not southeast west to orient themselves, both for like directions and time. I heard that if you were, instead of asking someone, how are you, you'd ask them what direction they're going and they would reply the actual direction that they're moving in. So at all times, people have sort of learned to keep track of like which way is north, which way is east, and keep track of the cardinal direction because it also affects the way that they look at time. So for English or a lot of other Europe and Indian languages time moves from from the left to the right
0: yeah from back to front like the way we represent it is usually a timeline
1: yeah yeah we have a timeline either left to right or back to front like both of those are commonly used they think of like time also moving with the cardinal direction so they think it moves from the east to west so if you were to have a gurkha speaker like facing the south direction they would still like figure out which way is east and have time oriented in that direction so if, if you if they were facing the south they would be like it's moving from left to right if they're facing the north it would move from right to left so because direction is such an important uh, thing for for their language
0: mm-hmm.
1: all the speakers pretty much have to learn the skill of constantly orienting themselves that i don't really have like Sometimes even if I was to go outside and stand and look at where the sun is, it might take me a few a few seconds to figure out which way is actually east and north.
0: I've gone twenty-four years not caring where north, south, east and west are. Exactly. Like because if I wanted to know, I just download the Compass app on my phone <laughs> or I use you know, I, I use geolocation. It's 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 a it's really convenient now. I don't need to keep it in mind, but for them Directionality is embedded into their language so strongly that even, even without these tools, they need to keep track of how they're oriented yeah. to north, south, east, west. And when we say time flows linearly, I mean, I'm sure it does for them as well. Like you said, depending on how they're oriented. Yeah. But it also changes um, it changes how you view time because for us it's static, but for them it could be a bit more fluid.
1: Or rather time is sort of like attached to the earth itself and not to you.
0: So, so anthropocentrism is another word that I think I have to introduce here. It means basically that our beliefs in the world or the way we perceive the world is centered around us. It's described as the world for us and the world in itself. So right now, the way we perceive the world in, I think across the West and in Indian languages is the world for us. We relate the world to us and thus we center the world around our perception. Whereas in, um, and again, I don't want to make assumptions here. This is just from whatever bit of research we've done. In languages like Google Yimidir, and I'd say even, pre-Vedic Sanskrit and stuff, or or pre-Vedic Indo-European languages and so on. It's a lot more world in itself. Like, there there is a relation between us and the world, but the world in itself exists beyond what we could do with it. Like, there was a very clear tension back in that time, I'd say. And it's interesting to think about how language evolves to change with these cultural conceptions of the world and us and the relation between the earth and us. Because now we look at the, we look at the earth as a pool of resources yeah. for us to make use of. Whereas I think back then, the earth was, you know, like we are on the earth, we are living on it. But right. it's not for us.
1: It's also interesting to see if our cultural conception of our existence and the world changed because we had like a different like language started slowly transforming a bit or did language transform because of the way we see the world like that interplay is what is like really fascinating
0: yeah did cognition give rise to language or did language give rise to cognition at a very derivative level that's kind of the the, the big question um and and to move beyond just human languages i i also want to bring up the fact that When we talk about language, it doesn't necessarily mean structured vocalization or what we would consider structured vocalization, like like the way I'm speaking now. because uh, language often refers to body language, well, body language and other non-structured vocalizations, um, such as, you know, um, the, the squeaks and squawks that parrots have the way uh, dogs and cats can communicate with their body language, the way they fluff their hair and everything. Their language is a thought because they're expressing their emotions and how they are relating themselves to the world. There's a very um, popular example of a bear, a lion, and a tiger, the BLT trio, living together in one confine in a sanctuary. So they were rescued from like a Floridian drug dealer. And, and um, they, they kind of lived together from birth. But each of them learnt the other um, species' language. They'd ask each other for affection or grooming, the way they'd play. Like, they they found each other's body language and they adapted. I I don't know if it's because they were brought up through, you know, brought up together through birth and through tragedy and trauma, or if it's because animals in themselves have the capacity to mould and adapt. To each other's body language
1: you mentioned that uh, a lot of these languages in nature don't have structure is it that they are aren't like very structured or is it just that we haven't been able to perceive the structure in their languages yet
0: I think it's more I think it's more that we don't understand the structure because we don't understand the vocalizations like like whales have an amazingly deep system of whale song. No two whale songs have ever sounded the same um, when when spectrally analyzed and all that. And they have different songs for different emotions. And all of this is there in like Attenborough documentaries. Like. Like that's the best part.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Our concept of language being this method of structured communication. It's very human centric in the sense that we can understand um, linguistic relativity fairly easily. Most people, if you ask them, if you learned another language, do you think you would think a little differently? And most people would say, yeah, a little bit, you know, like we'd learn a little more about a different culture. We might learn certain words that we wouldn't have known in English or whatever other language we speak. And so like it, it, it widens a bit for them. Yeah. But you wouldn't necessarily think of crows having a structured language. Right. Like that's not the first thought that comes to mind. You wouldn't think of dogs and cats having structured language between themselves. So, so the example I wanted to bring up after the BLT trio was the fact that a lot of cheetah cubs, right? They need support dogs when, they, when, when they're uh, brought up in captivity. They need that social bond. Otherwise, they they kind of just get ridden with anxiety, which is you know one is like it's kind of tragic, but it's
1: tragic and adorable and like just at the same
0: <laughs> time. <extent. Yeah. Yeah. laughs> but but the fact that these cheetah cubs, even once they've grown up, you know, once they've become adults, they still know how to play with the dogs. They know how to respond. I think there are other videos of full-grown tigers who haven't been accustomed to dogs. They they see dogs and they don't think of them as prey. They learn how to play with these dogs. They learn how to like adjust their body language to that of the dogs. And mm-hmm. like I, I don't know how much of that is like the way the dogs are bred in themselves, the way they've been selectively specialized to be friendly. I don't know how much of it is evolutionary and how much of it is just that Animals themselves have um, that kind of they have that ability to adapt to each other's language, so to speak. So coming back to my point, we don't necessarily think of body language as structured. Um, we don't think of barks and growls as structured. Sure, we know that certain vocalizations would entail certain emotions, but we don't think of them as structured. So so to get back to language as we see it. When we get to fantasy, there's very clear Elvish, Orcish, there's n number of these um, constructed languages. Like, like uh, I think, while, while I've never been too crazy into Lord of the Rings, call me a heretic all you want, but I'm a huge fan of Aragon, the, the inheritance cycle. I'm a huge fan of that. And there are derivatives from um, Tolkien's works into that. Orcs as Urgals, that kind of stuff. And uh, there's a rudimentary constructed language for each of the species or each of the races in um, in uh, the inheritance cycle. And reading about it, the inflections are so different and they embody certain traits of different languages. Um, I don't know how much of that is conscious, how much of that is subconscious. and It's a very interesting debate to get into, post-anthropocentric language.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating because our linguistic studies are as in like people's, I'm not a linguist, has reached the point where we have understood a lot of things about our existing languages, uh, structures, grammatic, phonetic systems, writing systems, a Mm -hmm. lot of these different ideas and also the sort of cultures that they're attached with, what sort of like, Uh, background that they have like uh, a lot of the languages in the Middle East follow right to left uh, writing systems there's a lot of like other sort of like ideas that we connect culture with certain types of like characteristics of languages Mm -hmm. so in a fictional world or for other like artistic or research academic reasons a linguist could take like ideas from different languages and put it together in a very specific structure that they want to convey. So it could be uh, things like in the fictional worlds where you want to create an idea of this kind of culture by taking real world examples of a very similar culture and sort of adjusting it, modifying it and just like playing around with the different systems to create a new system within the world. But like as people who are aware of the real world like culture behind that so what i'm trying to say is like in the dune books by frank herbert it's very clearly influenced by the middle east and like central and south asia so you see a lot of like language that is very similar to words that you would hear in uh, north indian or uh, languages or arabic and those kind of sounds and since a lot of it is set in like a desert world it, it feels very natural if we were hearing words that are from like Nordic or German, like it would just not sound right to us.
0: And and to add on to that, like to get back to my example of the Inheritance Cycle, because that's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. Um, you should read but, more. But I should, <laughs> I really should. <laughs> but but, uh, dwarves have always been cast as like an industrious, you know, like yeah. we work metal, we we're an industrial society kind of thing. Yeah. So a lot of the language cues are very Germanic and um, Nordic. Yeah, it's it's in between those two, um, and even in even in the way they're cast in games like Skyrim, the areas have this kind of Germanic and Nordic feel. Yeah, to how they're structured, to how they're written. Like you said, language and culture. We can take certain elements that we associate with you know those parts of the world and their languages, and so we tend to kind of distill that thing into a certain kind of alternative structure and alternative words, but capturing that same essence in a way. Yeah, We still think of German as a very straightforward language. It's, you know, it's, it's very direct. That's what most people who don't learn German would think of when they hear it, right? Because it's very clear cut. It's got like very um, direct pronunciations.
1: Yeah, especially coming from a background in English where... Yeah. Nothing is sort of consistent because it's borrowed oh, from yeah. <laughs> so many different places. The yeah. the pronunciation system, the fact that like the biggest challenge in learning the English language and the sort of like crowning championship that you can get is like winning the spelling bee because it's so difficult to spell a word in our language.
0: Yeah, English is such, well, excuse my language here, but English is such a bastardized language in that way, just in the sense that it's not it's not Anglo-Saxon anymore. It's just taken so many bits of influence from Latin, French, Italian, Sanskrit, Tamil, like so many other languages that we no longer know what English really is. Yeah. We just know what it isn't. <laughs> it's a negative definition almost.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tying it back to the constructed uh, and sort yeah. of like languages where like that are developed intentionally bilingualists instead mm-hmm. of like that have come through like a natural growth and like communities there's this language called Esperanto that's pretty big and was designed about a year a hundred years or so ago with the intention of being like a sort of universal can't say universal but like a language that most Europeans can easily understand yeah pan-european language Uh, it takes a lot of ideas from from various different european language from, from like romance languages and germanic languages and like eastern european languages and puts it together in a way that it's like almost mutually intelligible and the the learning curve is like it's pretty easy to pick up in comparison
0: once you know like yeah yeah, yeah. Once, once you know, know, you know one of like
1: those languages to a fluent level it's right. easier to pick up uh, esperanto And it's just fascinating that that idea where we can sort of bridge the gap intentionally by creating a language that's sort of like in between uh, other languages instead of just like trying to communicate with a person who speaks a different language and like uh, by trial and error like figuring it, figuring out or using like gestures right. and things like you can intentionally create a language that's like halfway between both of your languages.
0: I think another um, another slightly more historical um, example of something like Esperanto would be the, the, the thing between Khmer and uh, Thai and how similar they are to like older Telugu and Kannada kind of scripts. We went to Cambodia for a holiday, and we went to those when we went to a couple of museums in I think Phnom Penh or Roshetsiam, one of the one of those two. But we went to a museum, and we looked at a bunch of exhibits there. Mm-hmm. And um, early Tamil and Kannada and Telugu scripts looked so similar to Khmer and Thai script, like you can very clearly see that because of the trade between those two, like big kingdoms, the fact that they shared Buddhist and Hindu ideologies, like the names of certain kings are Rama and and there's a lot of similarity that way and it just makes you think about how you know those languages have kind of grown separate over time, over centuries, but they had a very very similar universal kind of start where both countries shared a similar script and probably similar inflections of like how they'd speak. Because of the amount of trade and cultural, um, what was the term? Cultural cross-pollination that happens between them. Bring
1: it back. I think an- another very relevant to that is Pali, uh, like yeah, the, it's yeah. essentially like a simplified Sanskrit that uh, yeah got tied in very close to Buddhist culture, and that was what uh, was carried carried over to places in Southeast Asia. Where the
0: yeah, yeah, specifically Pali. A lot of the Khmer and or old Khmer script—I I won't necessarily say it's the same now—but a lot of the old Khmer script has similarities to both both Telugu and Kannada kind of scripts, as well as Odisha and Bangla scripts. So, it, it like there are bits of like the Devanagari sharp influence versus the more rounded and softer. Um, how would you say it? Like the, the more rounded and softer letters of like Kannada and Telugu script
1: do you know there's like a deeper connection like is it just like were there was there like uh, a lot of trade between the places and yeah, it just yeah. naturally Yeah, definitely formed? a
0: lot of yeah i think it's just a lot of trade was there between the south as well as around the eastern part of india with uh, southeast asia at that time there was a ton of trade that happened so i think it's just a natural build up of the fact that so much of each other's culture influenced you know, each other. Like, we can see that even through the food. Different methods of preparation, but very similar spice range, very similar kind of flavor profiles, uh, especially with, between the South and East compared to Southeast Asia. This, like I'm talking the South of India and East of India yep. compared to Southeast Asia, because that's where a lot of the trade happened. It, it's just incredibly interesting to think about how food and language carry over so well across cultures. It's the most primary way of sharing knowledge. I'd say yeah. you know recipes of food have been shared for millennia, and it's it's just very interesting to think about the role that plays in cognition alongside language.
1: It's super fascinating. Like I know this is like pretty, uh, like We've take kind of a delved <laughs> off the take it a bit, aside from <laughs> our, from the original uh, like topic, but like <laughs> the fact that like red chilies and like green chilies and like chili peppers. Are not native to India, but are such an integral part of Indian cuisine. Right, like they only came <laughs> in during the colonial time when where it was brought by the Spanish, Portuguese traders to India from South America and, and Central I, America. I, I,
0: I can't live without them. Like I can't imagine any of our food without mirchi. Like yeah,
1: like, like
0: without malaga and our food. <laughs> like how how would we how would we live? <laughs>
1: the closest thing we had to it was black pepper and a lot of the yeah. other like like traditional like like herbs and spices cinnamon
0: are, and stuff like, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah cinnamon
0: cloves and I'm not even to too sure that.
1: about cinnamon but like I know black pepper no I
0: think cinnamon I know cinnamon cinnamon was definitely like if not cinnamon then cassia bark because there was a lot of trade that happened between China and India yeah. like that that I think is fairly like at least around the Buddhist time there was a lot of that cultural trade that happened yeah. so definitely cassia bark at least has made its way into india pre-co- pre-colonial times as, as a thing of seasoning food but this, this is what i think and my reason <laughs> not sure the you know, like.
1: thing is like it's so it becomes such an integral part like we're so like maybe like on the surface now we, we might not be that willing to take in a new ingredient and and integrate it into our cuisine but it's something that, like, when you look back, like, 50, 100 years after it's happened, it's just, like, it's become a staple. Whether it's stuff, like, like just, like, bread. Uh, like, like, if you were to look at our grandparents' generation, it was not really a thing that was consumed. But then now it's just, yeah. like, a staple that we're all, like...
0: We all just have a loaf of bread at home yeah, usually. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like, I know this is, like, super distant from our topic, but it's so fascinating how quickly, like, we just sort of pick aspects of culture
0: yeah i don't even think it's that far removed from our topic cuz while while food doesn't really influence cognition per se <laughs>
1: that would be fascinating
0: but food definitely influences culture and you know language as a part of culture evolves with food there are words for um, there are words for spice there are words for sweet and sour and these these kind of flavor profiles are different from language to language like like i don't think we have any other word other than umami for that specific kind of like glutamate-influenced flavor. What else could we call it? There's nothing else in any other language. I I don't know if it's Japanese. It
1: is Japanese, yeah. The
0: word, yeah. And it's such an important part of their cuisine because of foods like, because of things like miso and bonito and like kombu. There are these various things that they just use in their food that give that glutamate flavor. So they have a flavor profile for that. Which we
1: don't. Yeah, they have a word for that. And, and like a lot yeah. of the cuisine is built around that. But it's fascinating because like pretty much all food has aspects, of, like introduce the aspects of that.
0: Yeah.
1: Like tomato, like just using yeah. tomato in a pasta sauce also brings about the same like umami flavor. Yeah. Mushrooms have that. But we just don't have words for because we never like exactly. sort of identified that as another aspect of taste.
0: I don't think it's we have we've never identified it. It's because Ajnemo it yeah we've never categorized it yeah. because ajinomoto and like you know glutamates themselves as additives have been there in food industries for a long. Yeah, time.
1: yeah, we know it makes it tastier. We just never had a categorical word to describe yeah, like what yeah, exactly. like it's like adding uh, say tomato or like soy sauce. Like of course it has salt, but you know that there's like. There's something that else, bump. That it, yeah. A yeah, that that, little bump of, you know, yeah, yeah. It just
0: makes you, it, yeah. It just makes things taste nicer. <laughs> yeah,
1: which is what umami is like. If you haven't yeah. heard that word before, the closest thing in, uh, in in English that they use to describe umami is like savoriness, but that doesn't really clearly like describe what that feeling is. Yeah,
0: I think the we're kind of going on again I don't, actually, no no, no I this don't is actually first because we
1: don't have yeah. a word for umami in English and
0: yeah we've we've, we've kind of circled back to the point <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> so so like okay so now moving to post-anthropocentrism for a bit what would aliens try and categorize umami as <laughs> you know and, and and from there I just wanted to like bring up this idea of what do we think of when we try and imagine what aliens would speak? because languages like Klingon I don't I don't claim to know anything about it I've never been a trekkie yeah. but but there's a very clear language of Klingon and and there are fan encyclopedias and dictionaries about it people have written essays in Klingon yeah. I remember coming across an entire wiki written in Klingon with like the grammatical rules in English and everything. And I was just like, wait, this is a a language in a fantasy series. How can you be so sure that this is the language an alien species would speak when it has rules that are so clearly derived from human languages? Yeah. Because they're aliens. We can assume there is some level of sapience to an alien if they've come here. You know, there's some level of that thing of tool usage and so on and so forth. Some of those concepts they'd have. But beyond that, Actually, we can't even assume that because if we look at Arrival, which is a phenomenal movie, it looks at the idea of time as a language for aliens. We don't know how they perceive the world, what dimensions they use.
1: Yeah, I agree with that because like on Earth, we have air which acts as a carrier for sound. So... In a planet with a much lighter atmosphere or like a complete absence of air, but still for some reason, some beings that we can call life have sort of evolved to grow. They may not have like vocal cords or the ability to vocalize or create sound or an environment that that actually carries the sound to different places. So things like body language or completely different ways of communication, whether it's time Mm -hmm. and not actually saying time, but just like Some other aspects of it That can be used to communicate So there might also be Radiations that they send off To each other Sort of the way that we have Like IOT and smart devices Talking to each other Like you know Like they basically can It's sort of telepathy Where you could just Use like infrared Yeah, yeah, You beam your your thought Through radiation (laughs) To another being That has like a certain Like frequency characteristic Or wave characteristic that is very difficult to classify as language the way we know it but is still a, a mean of means of communication and
0: mm-hmm. and again how would we know what emotions they feel you know like if they don't have structured language we can't assume they do right because yeah. that I think is we, because even amongst humans, we have incredibly different languages uh, and concepts of various things. Like just the example of umami leads you down a few centuries of like food history.
1: Because you could visualize an alien sort of like world where every being essentially lives pretty much endlessly. So they may not have communal characteristics that require them to communicate with other beings of their kind. Mm. so they might they might just like evolve in their own independent way so they may not have language truly to communicate with others so that is
0: and again going back to what we consider the constraints of life which is you know carbon based and you know oxygen is necessary water is necessary we assume that's the case because we haven't found anything to disprove it but like I mean again this is super into conjecture and sci-fi kind of stuff because I think that's the more interesting part but um the interesting things I've read is that there could be silica and germanium based life forms because they have a, they have a similar way of forming linkages. They have a similar way of like bonding with other um, atoms. So there could be silica based life forms that are crystalline, you know. And even on Earth, we have, we have very different forms of intelligence. Like octopi don't have a centralized brain, or, or actually no, they have a centralized brain, but they also have brains for each of their tentacles so octopi have like a central brain but they also have ganglia or nerve clusters that can control each of their tentacles independently and the the tentacles don't need to communicate with the brain and it while it seems similar to the cns and peripheral nervous system that we have as humans it's kind of different because these tentacles regenerate, they move on their own, they can do all these things that when we talk about our peripheral nervous system, there's still some kind of connection to the brain through the spinal cord, right? right. Whereas here, it's not necessarily that they are centrally connected. And it, it, like again, I don't know biology well enough to you know get more into depth about octopi and stuff, but having read about the fact that they have a really high level of intelligence and problem solving natively, while being so alien to us, and we can't understand how octopi and cephalopods perceive the world. How can we say that we would do the same for an alien? To to make my point simpler, because I think I kind of um, lost uh, I kind of lost myself a bit there. But to make my point simpler, octopi and cephalopods have a completely different sensory modality when it comes to site like they see a different range of colors um and a different range of wavelengths than us
1: yeah you know you know what uh, i have a good example like that's been making mm-hmm. the waves recently there's this tiktok that uh, a couple of girls posted online which shows a spider react yeah to the, to the, the lidar yeah uh, to the lidar sensor on on a on an iphone so the iPhone uses like laser emissions to sort of mm-hmm. locate and like try to d- detect how far an object is so it can like do autofocus and do a lot of other cool right. imaging but so far from what i understand it wasn't really known that the spiders are sensitive and able. No, no, no.
0: So actually it was. Um, it, it's a study. I, I, I was following Hank Green's Twitter. And um, so he posted that TikTok and he's like, someone please tell me if this is a verified scientific discovery already. Because otherwise TikTok is making scientific discoveries now and I don't know what to make of it. Um, and then someone said, OK, yeah, but there's this particular species of spider has been proven in the 60s or something to have an Im- immense sensitivity to infrared and that kind of light what, sense. What
1: I understood is that they studied it under infrared but didn't study its perception of infrared. So they so like whatever but the final point is that like they have the ability to perceive other wavelengths that we right. do not like as humans a lot of other beings are also capable of doing this.
0: So birds can see beyond the blue spectrum. Yeah. Uh, cephalopods like i mentioned have this completely different sensory modality which we don't understand like like we can say oh yeah birds see beyond the blue spectrum we may not be able to express how that is but we can understand it through a physics manner the set the way a cephalopod sees and the kind of way its eyes are arranged we don't understand it well enough right now i think that's the that's the consensus i've seen in like the three four books i've read about them sure uh, and it's fascinating to think of because the, the, the cephalopod intelligence hasn't yet been fully grasped in the sense that we, we still don't know why um, they're so intelligent without following the traditional thing of, oh, um, you know, like from, from um, lacking a neocortex and then moving to having, that, having the neocortex and so on and so on, having ever increasingly specialized brain structures they kind of have diverged from that, but have arrived at a similar similar level of intelligence. And that is just so fascinating to read about. And it ties back to the idea of language um, rather specifically, because if we don't grasp how something like cephalopods can perceive um, differently, if we don't understand how birds can see beyond, or, or if we can't visualize how birds can see beyond the blue wavelength, we can't really do anything about or we can't really um, try and comprehend anything about life on other planets can we
1: yeah it becomes incredibly difficult to like even know what to start looking for at that point
0: right because even even between human cultures we we often feel lost we often feel like aliens in another culture right like like when i shifted from uh when i shifted from mumbai sorry when i shifted from gurgaon to chennai I felt in a, I felt like I was in a completely alien uh, culture, even though I am Tamilian, right? Even though I speak Tamil, even, even though, you know, all of that, I felt like I was in an alien culture because I just didn't know how to fit in. And this is like within a country, like this is, I was born in Chennai and I've lived a long time in Chennai, but I still felt alien. If, if we feel like that for just in between and intra-country kind of cultures, how can we try and insert ourselves or how can we try and make assumptions about alien cultures? It, it's it's just something that I think um, is at tension with uh, the idea of um, cultural language and all of that. Or our understanding of linguistics and of culture, it, It's it's... We can't speculate on alien life. Uh, We're yeah, kind of paralyzed by it. I that.
1: wouldn't put <laughs> such a clear stop that we can't. It's oh, just no, I mean, incredibly, incredibly difficult. We can't difficult. meaningfully.
0: Yeah, I'd say we can't meaningfully speculate about their culture and so on. Maybe about life and its foundations,
1: but yeah, at this at this point, at this point, it's still too early. Yeah. But. Maybe at some point, 50, 100, 200, 300 years into the future, we we might have Hopefully. more Hopefully. progress on this. Again, we might not have found anything by then, but at least our understanding of the world, understanding of how different be- beings may form right. communication and so on may uh, progress to a point where that is possible if we are still alive.
0: Yeah, I mean, so to, to tie this... Uh, to tie this entire discussion off i think i think we're ending on a pretty interesting note here right? like (laughs) extraterrestrial life culture so on and so forth
1: there's a lot of topics that we discussed today that we are not the most well read about we've certainly made some mistakes and uh, if there's anyone who wants
0: to make fact corrections topic suggestions or just generally reach out to us you can follow us on